Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. From the 9th to the 11th of May, 2023, the U.S. Army War College will host the second annual Strategic Land Power Symposium at the Army Heritage and Education Center here in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Notable guest speakers will include the commander of U.S. Army Pacific, the chief of the National Guard Bureau, and the commander of Third Corps. Bringing together students, scholars, and practitioners, the symposium aims to advance the concepts surrounding the role of strategic land power in cooperation, competition, integrated deterrence, and joint all-domain operations by presenting original research to senior leaders about how land power can help achieve future national objectives. As part of the symposium, the U.S. Army War College Strategic Land Power Integrated Research Project, or IRP, has gathered 12 members of the U.S. Army War College Class of 2023 to address aspects of the future role of strategic land power on a wide range of topics. To amplify the students' work, A Better Peace has organized multiple podcast sessions with those students to discuss their projects, their relationship to the Strategic Land Power Symposium, and possible implications for the future of U.S. security policy. This is the fourth of those sessions, and today's topic is mobilization and deployment, broadly conceived with Lieutenant Colonel Mike Barnett, Lieutenant Colonel Mark Mullinax, Colonel Ryan Noble, and Lieutenant Colonel John Holm. Lieutenant Colonel Mike Barnett is a Models and Simulations Officer in the U.S. Army. For his next assignment, he will lead the Logistics and Exercise Simulation Directorate at Fort Greg Adams, Virginia. Lieutenant Colonel Mark Mullinax is a Logistics Officer with the Kansas Army National Guard. His last assignment was Deputy Commander of the 235th Regional Training Institute in Salina, Kansas. His next assignment is the Kansas National Guard J-3 Director of Military Support. Colonel Ryan Noble is an Army Reserve Logistics Officer with previous assignments as the Assistant Chief of Staff, the 316th Sustainment Command, Commander of the 327th Quartermaster Battalion, the Assistant Chief of Staff G4 of the 316th, and Assistant Chief of Staff of the G4 of the 78th Training Division in all of uh, uh, in various locations in this person's army. Lieutenant Colonel John Holm is an active duty artillery officer who is currently at the War College and for his next assignment will serve as the Director of Concepts at U.S. Army Pacific. All four of these gentlemen are students in the Army War College class of 2023, and we are delighted to have you all with us today on A Better Peace. Welcome, gentlemen. Morning, Ron. Thanks, Ron. So first, I want to give you all a chance to describe your projects. I know uh, Mike, Mark, and Ryan, you uh, you have a combined project. So I'm going to give the floor to you to describe what you're working on. Okay. Um, so this is Mark. Um, 
First, we'll start with uh, kind of how we came up with the topic. Um, so once we started the IRP, you know, we were presented a, a list of questions that had been submitted for research. Uh, we also looked at the KISSL, the Key Strategic uh, Issues List, and also a list of topics that I received from the National Guard Bureau. And I noticed a recurring topic of uh, mobilization and also employing the reserve component. So uh, Mike Ryan and I decided to attempt a larger research project to, to get after several of those requested topics and, and try to tie some of them together. So, uh, so our project assessed the Army's challenge uh, in the fight to the fight, uh, the ability to mobilize and deploy forces through mob stations or uh, mobilization force generation installations, MFGIs, uh, and then balancing each Army component's capabilities to provide the required forces to combatant commanders. Uh, and this is all in, in support of large-scale combat operations against peer adversaries. So well, basically what we were studying this year uh, here at the War College. Um, now, optimizing mobilization, it's a, a very large and complex problem. can't be solved in, in this project alone. Uh, so our study focused on, on just six strategic actions to better support large-scale mobilization. And this is all in, in uh, what we title our fight to the fight. Uh, so the, the six actions that we, that we really studied and, uh, and focused on were maximizing effective use of uh, reserve component mobilization authorities, leveraging alternate mobilization sites, operating functional MFGIs, expanding civilian hires and contracting to increase continuity and reallocation of deployable readiness, uh, investing in MFGIs and other existing uh, Army infrastructure, and improving container management. And uh, each of us will discuss two of these topics uh, as we focused on that for our research project. Uh, so the, the two areas I looked at were, are going to be the first two. Uh, so first, we looked at the authorities to mobilize reserve component forces. Uh, and these authorities, they reside in, in Title 10 of U.S. Code. Um, this delineates the responsibilities to assign, allocate, and apportion forces into several mobilization levels. And each one has its own authorities, limits, and restraints. And what we found is that an adaptive and regular use of three of these mobilization authorities will provide forces faster whenever they're required for large-scale mobilization. Uh, the first of these is partial mobilization, under Section 12302, which authorizes mobilizing up to a million members, uh, but it requires the president to declare a national emergency. Uh, next is Presidential Reserve Call-Up under Section 12304, and it's used when the president determines that it's necessary to augment the active force for a named operation or an emergency. The president then authorizes the Secretary of Defense to federalize reserve forces. So in a time of, of constant conflict in the gray zone, the president could delegate this authority to the SECDEF for more regular use and employment of the reserve component. And third, uh, pre-planned mobilization support under Section 12304 Bravo, it's also a great option, uh, but it can only be used for pre-planned mission support of a combatant command. So the, the mission and the cost must be forecast and included in the services budget. And so we found that adaptive and regular use of these three mobilization authorities uh, will ultimately improve reserve component readiness and response time whenever they're needed. Uh, next, we looked at, at how the reserve component mobilizes. 
Uh, and typically they go through MOB stations or, or the MFGIs. Uh, but during a large-scale mobilization, these sites are going to be congested <clears throat> and time will be critical. So alternate mobilization options could expedite the process and reduce some stress on the MFGIs. Uh, the National Guard has used a process called home station mobilization uh, for select homeland-based missions. Over the last few years, this home station mobilization has been developed further into an alternative called in-place mobilization, uh, which is more often used for OCONUS deployments. And what we found to be most effective is a hybrid model focused on completing as much training as possible at home stations to minimize the time spent at an MFGI. And doing the research, we also found that First Army is further developing this concept to incorporate both the, the Army Reserve and the National Guard, and they expect to publish the updated tailored mobilization process this May. Thanks, Mark. Mike Barnett. Yes, Ron. So the the thing that ties in from the, uh, the MFGIs that Mark just talked about is one significant point is across the active component and reserve component, just want to consider that the active component deploys. They do all their training from the home station, then they deploy to the theater, wherever the crisis or contingency is. Whereas a reserve component across reserves and guard, as Mark described, they're going to go through several stages in the mobilization process. The congestion that he alluded to is going to be fraught with the active component leaving those stations and the reserve components coming in. So we start looking at, uh, in one of our requirements, is those the folks that are at the mobilization station are partly reserve component, partly active component, and civilian component. And there's things that are going to be going on across those areas where we discovered from interviews with uh, folks at the Director of Plans, Training, Mobilization, and Security Offices, which is also known as DPTMS. They've been going through the various uh, orders and products that are out uh, for the reserve and active component to do mobilizations. And we've, they've discovered that there's some, some issues, some conflicts that they wanted to resolve. Uh, we, when we talked with the folks at Fort Bliss, for example, they had just recently conducted an installation mobilization support plan tabletop exercise. Uh, this exercise was able to bring, bring together several agencies across Fort Bliss, which is one of the major MFGIs in the Army. And they discovered that... Uh, you know, with the congestion in the, in the contested homeland and different aspects of uh, the mobilization process, they saw that there was some issues with authorities. Basically, authorities is the, what different offices and different people ha can do to support mobilization. The biggest thing that we discovered was the authorities between the Deputy Commanding General for Mobilization, or DCG MOB, who is typically a reserve component general officer that's brought into help facilitate the mobilization process, and the DPTMS director. We, we saw that in many instances, the DPTMS director, because he or she knew all the entities across the installation would be better suited to run the mobilization process instead of this DCG, DCG MOB, and then that general officer would be free to do other processes in the mobilization process to support large-scale combat operations. Gotcha. Uh, one, perhaps one of the other things we could work out is a uh, uh, various forms of, of of acronym deconfliction. In, uh, in I guess that'll be that'll be for next year's that'll be for next year's uh, uh, IRP. But thanks a lot, Mike. I appreciate that. Uh, Ryan, 
Hi, Ron. So uh, when we were, were uh, getting after expanding the civilian workforce and contracting functions for improved deployable readiness, we basically saw DA has a really good plan for what's happening right now. We're deploying small volume, rotational. It works right now. So they're using Compo 2 and 3 to run these MFGIs, and they have DPTMS and logistic readiness centers to, to make this happen. And it is happening uh, in a in an efficient manner. But when we look to the future large uh, large scale combat operations, large scale mobilization operations, it's just not going to have the bandwidth and the continuity, you know, to to get things done the way uh, we're going to need it. So by altering the civilian workforce, um, uh, we were looking to increase continuity by taking DPTMS and LRC. They have the capability under MCOM and ASC to uh, to run these MFGIs. They they really don't need the uh, combo two and three, and what 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 that's consisting of is a kind of a chaotic um, uh, waste of deployable readiness, where you have a brigadier general, as Mike said, who's uh, serving as a DCG mob, and if if a uh, MFGI does get activated, you know that that uh that O seven is going to be permanently there, tied down to that uh, MFGI instead of uh instead of doing uh his, his other tasks. Then you have a, a regional support group with a, that's an O six command and. For each MFGI, on average, they're all they all have different sizes and functions, but that's like 1,300 soldiers. So, when you look across over 20 MFGIs, and if we get this thing going uh, during a LISCO operation, then uh, you know you've got a lot of uh, soldiers in Compo Two and Three, and as as you know, the reserve has most of the logistics for the total Army force. It's there's a lot of deployable readiness tied down to these MFGIs, and as I mentioned, you know. Uh, when I, I began my comments, it does work, but it just we just don't feel it can it can work when we need to get after that large uh, you know next Lisco fight to support the uh, the uh, tip fid for the geographic combatant commander. Another small portion of uh, altering uh, the uh, um, uh, civilian uh, workforce is in the reserve. You have all these uh, and uh, which includes comp, uh, National Guard and Army Reserve. They has a lot of maintenance facilities and shops. And there's a con congressionally mandated system called dual status military technician, and what that means is uh, the goal of that program, which is which is a good goal and it does work to an extent. It was to get soldiers that are soldiers on the weekends and uh, uh, during the exercises that are that are serving uh, the National Guard and the Army Reserve, but then they're also civilians, so they're kind of like they have a you know increased situational awareness and it kind of works really well together. But what we're finding is uh, in those shops that are very crucial for getting the uh, equipment out to power projection platforms when we will need uh, deployments, there's a uh, 90% of those uh, wrench turners, so to speak, are are uh, dual status military technicians, and there's there's a revolving approximate 30% vacancy rate, and that's due to many different things like soldiers having to deploy themselves. Some soldiers become uh, they, they want to go active uh, guard reserve program, which where they, be, they become full-time soldiers, and then their, their jobs are held for five years or so. And then uh, then they have to go to PME and just all sorts of other distractions. So the bottom line is the readiness divisions aren't able to, you know, get this equipment fixed the way they need to. So we're just looking for uh, the uh, reserve component to do a, a, stu a study and maybe find a better balance. Maybe not 90%, not 0%, but maybe not 90 maybe somewhere in the middle 50%. So we can have better... Uh, Staffing at those uh, those installations, so we can we can really react to a, a large scale mobilization operation, you know, when we're when we're called upon in the future. Uh, so moving to improving uh, container management, uh, the bottom line is the Army lacks uh, 
container management capacity to support a large-scale mobilization operation. Um, uh, right now, the service deployment and distribution command, the system's good. We have all the tools we need. They have it. They have the ability to accomplish this, but there's th three things that we uh, determine that need to happen to streamline this and get the, get us ready for the big fight. And that's to improve com container inventory, improve container management oversight, and increase proficiency of movement control team functions across the board. So we can uh, reduce costs and, and improve execution. So, so number one, improve container inventory. We the bottom line is we don't have enough containers. The reserve component only has about 10% serviceable containers of what they would truly need to uh, actually deploy what what the, what they need. And Ryan, can I I I, I am curious because I, I the the use of the term container um, does it have a an occult army meaning meaning or are we talking about basically shipping containers to put stuff in to move them from one place to another? Uh, well, the, the containers, the the civilian uh, sector uh, uses, it's it's called 20-foot equivalents, 40-foot equivalents, yep. and there's very specific dimensions, yep. and uh, that's what you need because uh, the, uh, you know, SDDC and Transcom, they're, you know, they're, uh, they're going to be contracting those large vessels. Sure. So we have, typically the Army has 20-foot containers, and you've got tricons and quadcons, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, uh, the, you know, obviously, like a, the different uh, um, amounts of tricons and quadcons ultimately equal 20 foot equivalents. And that's how, that's how the, uh, you know, transcom and SCC books vessels and whatnot. I gotcha. So there is a, a specific, uh, um, uh, definition and, and, and in those containers, a very specific way that load plans are developed and how all that stuff needs to go on there. And right now you basically have, uh, the current MFGI platforms of Fort Hood and Fort Bliss are kind of babysitting units to get that done. They kind of just tell you, bring it all, bring it all to the MFGI. We'll pack it up for you. Blocking, bracing, we'll get it done. There's just no way. There's not enough time. There's not enough capacity to make that happen in a large-scale mobilization operation. So that's why we need to get those containers. Um, uh, we need to beef up the inventory slowly. You know, it's it's, it's going to take time. There are some opportunities to gain some extra containers because there is a uh, due to the slowing economy. There are a lot of containers, in, for instance, in Europe that are. Uh, they're kind of just sitting there empty uh, and Transcom may be able to go out and get those uh, at a discount or whatnot to beef up the supply. So after we've beefed up the supply of containers, then now we're going to have more more containers in the system. So now SD, SDDC and, and their subordinates are going to be able to manage those better. And then we'll, we'll get uh, you know kind of train the trainer and, and push all those uh, the needed skills across the army. The, the last thing, increasing proficiency of you know, movement control teams. We have movement control teams, movement control battalions, sustainment brigades. We have all these organizations that know how to do this stuff. Once we get enough containers out there, once we get enough soldiers down at the uh, unit level that are handling these things, and they're you know we'll just spread the knowledge. Everybody's going to get better at these load plans, and then all the uh, different uh, logistics automated systems that are that are already created. There's no we don't need to the army doesn't need to buy anything else. We just need to we just need to get more containers, and we need to start exercising the use of container management in deployment readiness exercises, large exercises, you know, before we actually get to, you know, an actual uh, large scale mobilization operation situation. So we want to be prepared for that. Sure. Great. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mark. I'm going to come back with some questions for the three of you uh, in a moment, but I'm, I'm liking how, so this first presentation is about how we would gather the stuff up. So as, as active 
units begin to deploy, how we sort of move everything up behind them, right? The, the joy of logistics planning. But John Holm, your research project is about about that that front end, let's say, of the spear. And that is how do we get those, once those soldiers have been deployed, how do we actually get them into the fight? So tell us about your project. Yeah, that's right. Um, thanks. Thanks, Ron. So, you know, historically, the Army has used a model of deploying along largely uncontested or uh, relatively lightly contested uh, lines of communication, establishing an intermediate staging base, and then once they've amassed enough combat power, initiating their their land campaign from there in support of a broader joint force. And sometimes that requires joint forcible entry. But that's that's sort of been the historical model. And that's a great model. It has served us well uh, historically, um, but it's not it's not really well uh, attuned to a peer threat with a robust uh, anti-access area denial network, uh, deep deep magazine of you know anti-ship and and anti-air missiles, cyber capabilities, space capabilities. So that's that's kind of the the problem that my research. Uh, kind of dug into, the Army is doing a lot to try and modernize the way that we fight. But if we can't actually get into the fight, then it's maybe it's it's all for naught, or there's there's some risk that needs to be ironed out. Uh, and so, what my research has kind of uh, indicated is uh, our our joint doctrine when we when we talk about deploying uh, into a hostile environment, it it really offers two options: joint forcible entry or establishing an, an intermediate staging base. And just looking at those things conceptually, looking at the modern operating environment, our, our threat capabilities, and then also a couple of relatively recent case studies, the, the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine and the Battle of Antonov Airport um, was a not exactly an airborne joint forcible entry, but sort of in that ballpark. And then the last major amphibious joint forcible entry uh, that's probably worth looking at would be the the British and the Falcon Islands. So again, merging historical case studies, uh, an understanding of the adversary, and just thinking about these things conceptually, what, what you start to see is interrelated and compounding risks to force, risk to mission, and, and risk to timeline if, if you try and use joint forcible entry or an intermediate staging base based on the capabilities and doctrine and force structure that, that we have right now. Um, so I've also started peel back a, a couple recommendations about how to approach this, this problem and start mitigating some of these risks. And the first is, th- this is these are risks that we have to mitigate. The, there can be a natural appeal to, to look at Ukraine and say, hey, well, maybe that's that's a model that we can use in the future, a uh, way to kind of skirt contested, um, contested deployments and problems with our threats to our, our lines of communication and less lift assets during the deployment process. Uh, based on the research I've done, I don't think that that is a that's not a sound model to try and replicate for future crises. And I, I can go into that more detail if you'd like in the future. So I've really kind of been my recommendations into three overall categories. One is we really have to understand this problem better. And the Army is taking some efforts to to address that. But I think we need to 
to do more, better, faster in understanding this problem. Because if, if the army can't get to the fight, then it can't support the joint force. Um, even if we're not the supported service anymore, if we're thinking through the lens of Indo-Pacific command, where the army may be in more of a supporting role, the joint force still needs the army. So we have to be able to get uh, to, to the place of need at the, at the speed of need. So understanding the problem better, setting the theater naturally leads to the question of set it for what? And one of the things we have to, to be mindful of is we have to set it for contested deployment. So there are certain things that we need to do in steady state security cooperation, our force posture, uh, what, what we do with our army preposition stocks to set the theater to deploy into a contested environment because we anticipate that's that's the environment we're going to have to deploy into. And then the last is address capability gaps. That's that's the hardest. Uh, it's it's probably uh, maybe the most expensive. Uh, it can be people's natural tendency is to go to, to developing new capabilities or modernizing existing capabilities first. But I think until we understand the problem and there's some things we can do within existing authorities to set the theater that, that can help mitigate a lot of those risks before we go straight to breaking out the checkbook and trying to buy some new kit. Well, and, and this is the, the interesting thing about, about both of these projects and all of your aspects of it that fit together. They, they raise a, a, a question, especially for, uh, for an outside observer, and that is on the one hand, right, the uh, United States military has been uh, busy for the past couple of decades, right? We've been doing a lot of fighting, but we realize now that this is a very different kind of fighting than we would be likely to do in the future. And so that's what I'm trying to think about, like even for, for both, um, for, for, for Mark, Mike and Ryan, for your research project, but also for you, John, is, are, is it possible to say uh, that while we've learned a lot over the past 20 years in how we organize the force and deploy it, that we're going to have to be able to forget some of those things that we've learned, or let's say ignore those things because the, the different conflict's going to be different. And I'm, I'm, that's what I'm trying to wrap my head around, right? Because we, John, when you're talking about, you know, a contested environment, right? Is we, we can't right. sort of leisurely put forces together and then decide to fight when we want to fight. If we're responding, let's say to, I don't know, pick an example completely out of thin air, right? If we were responding to a PRC invasion of Taiwan, right, that would, you know, sure. that would be very different. And so, um, and, and this goes back to Ryan's point about, about getting containers and having everything that were available, right? I mean, if people are comfortable with the way things have gone so far, is the danger that people are going to say, well, we'll just kind of do what we've been doing. It'll just be a little harder. Um, or do we really need to get people to think about these things as completely different? So I'll start with you, John, and then yeah. I'll go to the, the triplets. Sure. <laughs> triplets. I like that. <laughs> um, yeah. The, that nickname is going to stick with them now. Uh, Sorry guys. So, so yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's not necessarily sort of malicious or lazy. It's just in, in a large bureaucracy, institutional inertia is an incredibly powerful force. Sure. And if we've been fighting mainly, counterinsurgency and doing stability operations for 20 years, some people that that's their entire career has been doing that. So it's, it's not necessarily in an intellectual laziness or a failure to appreciate the problem. It's some people need to be sort of shaken out of, Hey, the, the world is changing. The, the type of, uh, 
environment that we anticipate in the future is going to be radically different than we have in the past. So it's not necessarily forgetting. It's just uh, it's calling to mind some of these unarticulated assumptions. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it pe- people just they just assume uncontested lines of communication because for their entire career, it's not something they've ever had to, th- to think right. about. So it, it's not, it's not necessarily laziness. It's not um, necessarily anything malicious, right. but it, it, I think it does require kind of shaking folks out of their, their comfort zone a little and saying, this is something completely different. Uh, I think was that, was that Monty Python, how they would transition between skits exactly. and now for something completely different? Exactly right. We're in a, and now for something completely different moment. I like that. So while you, while uh, for, for those of you, unfortunately, uh, who are only listening to this podcast, you don't get the video, uh, the, uh, the video images, but Mike made sure to hold up for all of us a copy of uh, FM 3.0 on uh, joint multi-domain operations, or I can't remember how many different words go into that, but, uh, but this, uh, so I want to go to the, the three of you about your work on how we, deploy and mobilize all of the forces um, and specifically with the relationship between the compos is have, can we say that over the past 20 years, because goodness knows there's been a lot of pressure put on the reserve and the guard um, uh, in their role uh, uh, within the, within the overall mobilization of the force have the things that have been going on for the past 20 years helped to prepare us for the possibility of these large-scale operations, or are there things we're going to have to relearn or unlearn? Or, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, the Germans have a term, so umlernen, so you essentially learn around something, right, rather than it's not, you're not changing everything, you're not changing nothing. What do you, what do you think? I'll, whichever one you want to oh, Ron, I Go think uh, it's a little bit of both. It's a little bit of both. Um, uh, so the things that were positives were um, uh Going into the two th- early 2000s, the reserves was more like a weekend a month, two weeks a summer kind of thing. And then when when things picked up and you got the um, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan operations going on, like the reserve force became way more of an operational force where they, they were like under resource and, and uh, under trained for for a while since uh, since like Desert Storm and Shield. Uh, so that that's definitely a big positive. One of the negatives is once we got into the ro- rotational deployments between uh, Iraq and Afghanistan uh, soldiers uh, forgot how to uh, to uh, deploy a, an entire unit so hmm. we, we were we kind of got uh, kind of just uh, used to theater provided equipment where you would just get on a plane tat with your weapon and a, you know, a couple small items you would arrive in theater and then and then what you needed would be sitting there for you and we wouldn't be in a contested environment we'd have uh, dominance of all domains and so from that respect, you know, we got uh, got a little bit complacent. So there are positive and, and negatives on both sides, I think. Sure. That's good. Another thing to add to that, Ron, is the uh, – this is Mike. So the – where Ryan was talking about the – that uh, alluded to the training mm. piece. The In the early days where the Guard and Reserve were being activated, and at the time I used to be a Georgia Guardsman, so I went through this. We trained for months before we went to the mobilization station at Fort Stewart. First Army was instrumental in getting us from the previous mindset of, you know, monthly drills and an annual training period to getting into a different mindset. But we had, again, months to get ready for this, plus a rotation at the National Training Center and then a deployment into a theater of operations where 
we walked off the airplane, we grabbed our equipment, and then fell into an area of operations. The the new construct, as we've all looked at and examined from from the emerging doctrine and our interviews with with folks in the force, we may not have that same luxury going mm-hmm. forward. And this is where, uh, through the research, we've been finding that some of these things that we've talked about momentar- a, a little while ago, we're not going to have that luxury of time. Uh, so that's that's where the the integration with First Army with the observer controller trainer packages to help folks that are going from a uh, that are not in that are not in the active duty that are doing this every day are going to have to learn these uh, these skills. And uh, I'll tee this up for Mark since he's got a better perspective on the guard. How that that integration helps with that transition. Yeah. What do you think, Mark? Um, so really, I mean, I, I think those are some great answers. Um, and, and really the, the area I see the, um, to really concentrate on is, is really emphasizing what John talked about and it's the, the contested, in, uh, environment. Um, you know, what, what the doctrine is telling us now is that for a, a large scale, uh, mobilization or, or as we prepare for large scale combat, we can expect to to deploy from a contested homeland. Now it may not be a, you know, a kinetic uh, type of, of contest, but we can expect, uh, you know, competition and, and, and conflict uh, in the gray zone. You know, we can have uh, cyber uh, and space. Uh, so, you know, we don't train to, uh, you know, how we're going to react to that. So I, I think that's really uh, where we've got to focus. Hmm. See, there, there, there are so many different aspects of this and I'm, I'm, I'm excited that you're going to be making this presentation at the symposium uh, in front of some uh, high-profile folks who will hopefully hear these things. Hopefully, not for the first time, but if they've, but if they're hearing them from you, at least that'll get them thinking about it. I wanted to, uh, you know, I'm conscious of the time that we have together. I wanted to ask all four of you how you feel your uh, participation in this integrated research project has uh, either fit in with or enriched or both your experience at the Army War College, right? As people know, every student's required to do a research project of some sort, but not everybody chooses to participate in an IRP. And not every IRP also um, has this sort of culminating point in a public symposium. And so how have you felt this experience has been part of your education? I'll throw that open to all four of you. I'll, I'll jump on the grenade first, Go, Mike. Uh, sure. Ron. <laughs> thanks for, for thanks for teeing it up. So I, when I was looking at the the menu of options for research projects, uh, this project spoke to me from a couple of perspectives. One, uh, as I alluded to, I'm a former guardsman, so I had that experience of having to uh, train, mobilize, deploy, redeploy, and so on. Uh, again, as a citizen, as a civilian soldier. I also had to have a, um, a regular day job and I used to work in transportation. So there's a lot of things that I did in that background that when I was talking with some of the faculty, they said, Hey, here's a pretty good, uh, an a- pretty good area that you have some experience in that you can bring to bear. And at least, you know, ask some of these questions from your experience about trucking, about working with civilians, working in the guard now as an active duty service member, how that all ties in. So that appealed to me uh, across the spectrum of the uh, the available uh, projects that were out there. Uh, plus, the way this IRP was packaged, it had a lot of the aspects of what we needed to re- uh, accomplish in our, our war college experience, 
also appealed to me because we had the, the the paper, the the podcast, the symposium. It uh, it, it wrapped everything up into one uh, easy to manage uh, package, if you will, as opposed to uh, you know someone who's doing their own project without the benefit of this of this IRP and the the totality within the strategic land power program because as mark alluded to a moment ago john talked about the contested homeland there are other team members that are looking at cyber the contested logistics and it all gets back to what we've learned from the emerging doctrine what we learned across the curriculum so that's that's what drew me in and i'm I'm very excited about this opportunity that's great that's great anybody else yeah um so i i think a, a key element that the faculty here at the War College sort of emphasizes is how the construct of a seminar and the deliberate planning that goes into constructing a seminar so that you're bringing in folks with a lot of different experiences, a lot of different backgrounds, that's that's core to the learning experience of a War College student. And the benefit of doing the, the Strategic Land Power IRP is you, you essentially have two seminars. You have your your base seminar, but then this IRP meet once or twice a week over the course of several months. So you you have the opportunity for, to learn from twice as big a pool of experience and knowledge and and perspectives. So I think that's very valuable. And then also the the structure of it. So it's we we do uh, classes. It's the IRP is not just about sort of collaboration and tossing ideas around for our research project. We do have classes that are focused on the theater army perspective. So kind of operational theater level of war, but they're developed largely to go in stride with the core curriculum. And so sometimes we'll have a class on cyber operations before we get to that part of the curriculum with our base seminar. So we've, we've already wrestled with an idea. We've already had exposure to a subject matter expert here on faculty at the War College through our IRP and are then able to bring that into our base seminar to say, hey, so, yep, these are the readings we all did together last night. But when I met with my IRP last week, this is some of the information we got, some perspective that we got from that, and it helps enrich the broader seminar experience. Great. Go ahead, Ryan, and then Mark. Yeah. Ron, just to add a little bit uh, to what John just said, you know, so so the uh, core courses of the War College, uh, this fit very well in with them, but th- those are, as you know, are more unclassified nature. So so when we when we would uh, be doing something in like military strategy and campaigning, we get the unclassed version, and then then we would have sometimes you know a repeat uh, topic, and we can go into depth, and we can hit it on the classified side, and we can dig dig in deeper with the IRP seminar team so that's uh, i think that that uh trade-off between classified and classified and, and getting a, a deeper dive and then just building on what you know we learned in in, in the core course and then the and then just expanding our knowledge for sure that's great and mark please yeah so uh i really like the way this uh the irp was structured as well so really tacking on to what john said um and and you know, just to emphasize what he said, I, I don't know how many times in seminar I, I did hear him say, well, as we discussed in, in my IRP, 
so he, I mean, he was, he was like a salesman for the, the, uh, the IRP as well throughout the seminar. So um, I, I do get kickbacks for doing that. For <laughs> so you, t- are you two the only two who are in the same seminar together? Uh, no. Um, Andy Sinden and Paul Lashley are also both in the same base seminar and I IRP. That's right. So I'm also uh, with uh, Lily. Okay, so other no, members of the IRP. This I'm is good. Yeah. So Lily, Lily, and 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 Andy. Uh, yeah, they were on in different uh, different iterations of this podcast. Well, and of course that's the you know the idea of right. We want students to come here to have a variety of academic experiences. Right. One of the things that uh, the dean will be pleased with me for saying is we want to develop sort of more uh, tailorable. Um, education. We want students to feel as though they are they're making choices that are shaping. While there's there's a certain degree of knowledge, we're hoping that you're all going to take away. We also want you to be able to uh, develop those things that are going to strengthen both the things that you're already interested in and make you prepared for the future. There's a lot of different aspects of this topic, but uh, unfortunately, we're just about out of time for this conversation. It's been a real pleasure to have the four of you um, here to talk about your work. I wish you lots of luck uh, in a in a positive way. With your um, with your last few weeks as students here at the War College, right? We will be done by the beginning of June um, in your future assignments at the uh, symposium, which I'm sure is going to be a, a really great experience for you. But uh, but thanks so much, Mike Barnett, Mark Mullinax, Ryan Noble, and Jonathan Holm for being with us here on a better piece. Thanks, Ron. Thanks, Appreciate Ron. It. Thanks, Ron. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and all the programs. Uh, we're always interested in hearing from you uh, and give us suggestions for future programs. Please take a moment after you have listened to this conversation and consider uh, subscribing to A Better Piece on your podcatcher of choice because uh, if you want to be properly mobilized for future uh, strategic and uh, intellectual challenges, what would be better than having yourself prepared by regular access to the conversations here on A Better Piece? And after you have subscribed uh, and so properly mobilized and prepared yourself for intellectual deployment, um, please rate and review this podcast so that other people can find out about us too. We're always interested in growing this community for conversations like this one. And even though this conversation is over, we look forward to welcoming you next time. And so until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.